Well, tonight we're looking at the last chapter of Isaiah. We've been in Isaiah for roughly a year. Uh, There's been a few Wednesdays. I know we didn't meet, but uh, tonight is the 52nd lesson. So right about a year. 66 chapters. And uh, tonight we come to the last chapter, which is really like a grand finale, if you will, or the ultimate conclusion of the the book of Isaiah. And in this chapter, Isaiah is going to draw together uh, several themes that have been throughout the whole book, but especially in the last section, uh, themes of judgment, themes of salvation, uh, themes of the final restoration of all things in which God will be glorified throughout the whole earth. And so this is Isaiah's conclusion to his prophecy. And the first part of the chapter, verses 1 through 14, talks about the judgment and the restoration of Jerusalem. And as Isaiah has done, he distinguishes between uh, those who have had hard hearts, been stubborn toward the Lord, who have faced wrath and his chastening hand. And he distinguishes those from those who have a humble heart, those who seek to honor the Lord and live in faithfulness before him. And so these two themes of judgment and restoration are set side by side in these opening verses. And in verses one and two, we see that the sovereign Lord delights in the humble. The sovereign Lord delights in the humble. In verse one, Isaiah says, this is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? And when we think about this in the context of the time in which Isaiah is writing this, he is writing this before the exile. But at this point in his prophecy, he's looking beyond the exile uh, to the time when God's people will return and there will be a, a rebuilding, a reconstruction of the temple. And there are uh, allusions, uh, phrases, reminders here of going all the way back to the original construction of the temple uh, back in Second Samuel, in which, uh, in First Kings, when David gathered the materials and then Solomon built the temple, and then in, in First Kings, he dedicates the temple. And as a part of that dedication and a prayer to the Lord, he, he reminds the people that the temple, the building itself is really not sufficient to hold the God of the universe. And so Isaiah is reminding the people of Israel of, of that truth, that even though they are called to come back home and they're called to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, that God really cannot be housed in any small building like that. The whole universe is where he dwells. And so the heavens are his throne. He sits over the whole universe. The, the earth, this whole world in which we live, that's just God's footstool. So that's just a place where he rests his feet. Of course, this is metaphorical, right? This is using anthropological language of God, who is a spirit. But it provides really uh, an, um, very, a lot of imagery, doesn't it? That, this, that the God of the universe would, would call this entire planet just a place where he rests his feet shows us the infinite majesty of God. And then in verse two, he says, has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. 
These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. So God is saying, I am the Lord of heaven and earth. Everything that you see, I brought into existence. And what God delights in are those who come in humility before him with a broken heart and with a submissiveness of spirit to what the Lord has to say in his word. And this is in direct contrast with the, the rebellion that Israel has demonstrated throughout much of its history. Uh, a, a rebellion against the word of the Lord, where God would send prophets to them. And the prophets would bring God's word, but they would reject those prophets. They would mistreat those prophets and persecute them and ignore what the Lord had to say. And instead, they would do their own thing. And they would worship their own gods, and they would go their own way. But Isaiah is reminding them here that what the Lord truly delights in is not a ritualistic worship, not uh, just coming to the Lord with our lips, without our hearts, or coming to him with sacrifices without our deeds of obedience. But what God delights in is a truly broken heart who, who seeks the Lord in his word. And so the Lord delights in those who are humble. The Lord encourages the faithful, verses 3 through 6. The Lord encourages the faithful. In verse 3, he says, But whoever sacrifices a bull is like one who kills a person, and whoever offers a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. Whoever makes a grain offering is like one who presents pig's blood. And whoever burns memorial incense is like one who worships an idol. They have chosen their own ways and they delight in their abominations. Now, what is Isaiah saying here? Clearly, Isaiah is not saying that all of the offerings that the Lord established in his word, such as in Leviticus and in Exodus and Deuteronomy, in the law, uh, it was right and proper to bring an offering. It was right and proper to bring incense before the Lord. It was right and proper to bring atoning blood before the Lord. But so what is Isaiah talking about here? He's talking about doing those things with a rebellious heart. Or he's talking about doing these things without the accompanying heart of brokenness that verse 2 was just talking about. And so he's saying that if you come before the Lord with a, a heart that is proud, a heart that is rebellious, uh, a life that is bent on doing evil deeds, and you bring these sacrifices before the Lord, they're meaningless, they're worthless, and you might as well be just openly breaking God's law because you're engaging in false worship by bringing sacrifices that, are not, that don't come from the heart, from a heart that is broken before the Lord. And so in verse four, he says, so I also will choose harsh treatment for them and will bring on them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. And this goes back to Isaiah's original call, doesn't it? In Isaiah six, when the Lord called Isaiah and said, I'm sending you as a prophet, but I'm sending you to a people who are blind and deaf and hard-hearted. They're not going to listen to you. 
And so this describes that the fact that the Lord called, but there were people who didn't have ears to hear, people who didn't have hearts that were open to receive. And so as a result, they received the Lord's chastening hand. And in Isaiah's prophecy, the, the greatest manifestation of that chastening hand was being sent in exile in Babylon. They received what they were due because of their rebellion. But the Lord is going to encourage those who have been faithful to him. So those who have been hard-hearted and rebellious and brought worthless sacrifices, they receive what is due them. But to those who have been humble and, and desire to, to know the Lord and his word, God's going to encourage them. And so verse 5, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. Your own people who hate you and exclude you because of my name have said, Let the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy, yet they will be put to shame. Hear that uproar from the city. Hear that noise from the temple. It is the sound of the Lord repaying his enemies all that they deserve. So in these couple of verses, in verses 5 and 6, you see the merging together of these themes of judgment but blessing. Judgment on those who are God's enemies, or even judgment on those who are among his own people but who have rebelled against him. But blessing and encouragement for those who have humbled themselves before the word of the Lord. So in, in the same event of, of judgment, there's going to be vindication for the righteous. God is going to bless those who have been faithful to him. And then in verses 7 through 14, the Lord promises to bring about a rebirth of Jerusalem, a full restoration of his city that has been destroyed. Verse 7, he says, Before she goes into labor, she gives birth. Before the pains come upon her, she delivers a son. And so God is using the imagery of childbirth to describe the rebirth of Jerusalem. Verse 8, Who has ever heard of such things? Who has ever seen things like this? Can a country be born in a day or a nation be brought forth in a moment? Yet no sooner is Zion in labor than she gives birth to her children. So this imagery in verses 7 and 8 is of a very quick uh, childbirth, a very short labor pains. And, and he, he says the words, can a city uh, be brought forth in a day or a country or a nation? And now Jerusalem literally speaking, wasn't rebuilt in a day. Uh, the temple wasn't literally rebuilt in a day on the calendar. But this is metaphorical language to describe the, the quickness in which God is going to act on behalf of his people. And so very quickly, there's going to be an overthrow of the Babylonian government. The Persians are going to take over. Cyrus is going to come on the scene. And in a relatively quick, short amount of time, God's people are going to be able to go home and the restoration will begin. And so it would be, it's almost like that which was dead is all of a sudden resurrected because of God's movement in the affairs of the world. Do I bring to the moment of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord? 
Do I close up the womb when I bring to delivery, says your God? Basically saying, I've been moving along all of these events, all of these things, and I'm going to finish what I started. So it's the process is already in motion, if you will. And this birth, rebirth of Jerusalem is going to happen. The process is already there. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice greatly with her, all you who mourn over her. The idea of mourning there reminds me of the prophet Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations, which much of it is about Jeremiah looking at this city of Jerusalem, seeing its destruction and mourning over that. And so here Isaiah addresses those who mourn over this broken down city. And he says, now you can turn your mourning into joy because God is coming to restore and rebuild, rebirth to this city. For you will nurse and be satisfied at her comforting breasts. You will drink deeply and delight in her overflowing abundance. So continuing the imagery of childbirth, God's going to give birth to Jerusalem and the, the people now are seen as coming like newborn children coming to, to feed and gain nourishment from this place that God is going to bless. For this is what the Lord says, I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of nations like a flooding stream. You will nurse and be carried on her arm and dandled on her knees. In verse 13, he says, as a mother comforts her child, so will I comfort you and you will be comforted over Jerusalem. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants. As I think about verse 12 and God talks about the peace that is going to flow into Jerusalem and and the wealth that's going to flow into Jerusalem, it, it brings back some of the discussions that we've had about how this will be fulfilled. And I think when we come into verses like this, we see kind of a, an initial fulfillment, but then an ultimate fulfillment. So the initial fulfillment is when the Israelites can come back home and there is restoration in Jerusalem. And it's that restoration in Jerusalem that brings in the Messiah. Jesus will come out of that restored Jerusalem that is rebuilt. And then, but then there's ultimately going to be, after the times of the Gentiles, if you will, there's going to be a final regathering, a final blessing of Jerusalem in which I think this will be fully fulfilled in the coming kingdom. And that's where the rest of the chapter of Isaiah 66 is turning to at the end is this glorious restoration at the end of time. So those who mourn will be comforted because of what God is going to do. And then in the last part of chapter 66, we see God's final judgment on the nations and then the ultimate glory of God that leads into the eternal state and and God's people dwelling with him forever and ever. So we see God's judgment against all sin in verses 14 through 17. God's judgment against all sin. The second part of verse 14 says, The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. Again, there's that dividing line 
between judgment and salvation. God is going to bless his people, but those who are his enemies, they will receive his wrath. See, the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment on all people and many will be those slain by the Lord. I think in these verses, we can see some hints, uh, maybe even just a a little bit of uh, some wording, some phrases that John picks up on in Revelation 19. When, When John describes kind of the final judgment of all things, of Jesus Christ coming back with a sword in his mouth. And, and there is blood to the horse's bridle, it says in Revelation. So that this is the final fury, the final wrath, if you will, of God on a sinful world. And it will be a time of great wrath and a, a time of great um, indignation, but one that is righteous because God is righteous and he brings this justice to the world. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one who is among those who eat the flesh of pigs, rats, and other unclean things, they will meet their end together with the one they follow, declares the Lord. So this is describing false worship. Those who uh, consecrate themselves to go into the gardens is probably a reference to like um, the groves or the, the places where these Asherah poles might be uh, quote-unquote sacred sites that were really idolatrous, pagan sites of worship. And those who obviously eat of unclean things in the name of worship, all this is related to false worship and disobedience of God. They'll be judged. They'll be judged at the end. The sending of messengers, verses 18 and 19. The sending of messengers. And with this Judgment, we also see God's uh, granting of good news, though. God's sending out good news of salvation, not only to Israel, but to the world. So verse 18 says, And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. Isn't that a great thought? That, That God is... God is ultimately gathering a people from the whole world that will honor his name. That's really what the gospel is about. That's really what missionary activity is all about. Missionary activity and and the sending of messengers to deliver the gospel, it's really about this, about gathering people from every nation to glorify and honor the name of God. In verse 19, he says, I will set a sign among them. And I will send some of those who survive to the nations. So the survivors there would be like the remnant. God's remnant that he saves by grace. Some of those he's going to send out like missionaries to the nations. To Tarshish, to the Libyans and the Lydians, famous as archers. To Tubal and Greece, to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. You could see here, I think, a, an early prediction of the book of Acts. Because this is exactly what you see happening in the book of Acts. 
you see God's messengers, those who have been saved by the grace of God, which really starts as a small remnant, doesn't it? In Acts chapter 2, there's 120 people gathered in the upper room, and on them the Spirit of God comes, and then the whole rest of the book of Acts is God sending them out far and wide to take his news to places like Greece and Tarshish. Tarshish is probably in Spain, which is where Paul was headed uh, before he was arrested and then brought to Rome. But this this is fulfilled in the, go- in the gospel, in the early church's missionary activity, and it continues to be fulfilled even today as we continue to spread the word of God to the nations. And then God will bless the nations, verses 20 to 23. And they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord on horses and chariots and wagons, on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. So at this final time of judgment, but also final time of salvation, God is going to gather all of his people from the whole world. Not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, from the north, the south, the east, and the west. Reminds me of what Jesus said in the Gospels. He was talking to the religious leaders of the Pharisees, and he says, I'm going to bring people, my people, from the north, the south, and the east, and the west, and they're going to come down and sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. But you, false leaders, religious hypocrites, you're going to be on the outside looking in. God is going to gather his people to his kingdom. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. And so it's hard to know exactly how this will be fulfilled in the coming age, uh, because Isaiah is writing from this Old Testament context, right? So he's writing from a context of Levites and priests. But he's writing about a time after which the Lord will come and Jesus will have already fulfilled what the Levites and the priests were all about. So how, how will this be fulfilled at the end of time? It's hard to say for sure. I think in the immediate future for Isaiah, there will be a restoration of priests and Levites who are ministering in Jerusalem. In the end, in a sense, we're all priests. We're all have access to the Lord God. But that doesn't deny that in the the kingdom, in the eternal state, there may be different roles that God has for different people to perform in the worship of him in a new heavens and a new earth. As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. In other words, God doesn't renege on his promises. God's, God's promises to Israel are going to endure They may not be exactly fulfilled as a way that maybe an Old Testament Israelite thought, but they're going to be fulfilled. And God will not forsake his promises to them. And so his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are fulfilled, but they're also fulfilled not only by blessing his physical descendants, but they're also fulfilled by blessing the world. And that's what God told Abraham from the beginning, wasn't it? God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and through you, I'm going to bless all families of the earth. So this is God fulfilling that at the end of time in a new heavens and a new earth. From one new moon to another, 
And from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. That's a universal picture, isn't it? Of the final gathering of all of God's people and all of those, every single one who are in this new heavens and new earth, all of them are God's people. And all of them are worshiping together the same God who saved them. And then there's a final warning to the wicked. The very last verse of Isaiah, one last warning. And they will go out and look on the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. The worms that eat them will not die. The fire that burns them will not be quenched. And they will be loathsome to all mankind. Does that language sound familiar? It's Jesus in the Gospels talks about the fires of hell and says those who are in the fires of hell, the worm will not die and the fires will not be quenched. And so Jesus puts it into the framework of eternal judgment, eternal damnation. Isaiah, from his perspective, he's looking at it as like the end of a great battle with the slain on the ground. But Jesus gives us some new insight, understanding into it and that This is talking about eternal condemnation, eternal death. And I think what the way that Isaiah finishes here in chapter 66 with this twofold picture of God's blessing on his people in a new heavens and a new earth, but then the very last verse of Isaiah of those who have been wicked judged is exactly the same thing that Matthew 25 presents when it says that at the last day, Jesus, as the judge of all mankind, will stand there and will have sheep and goats, sheep on his right hand, goats on his left. And those who are his will go into everlasting joy in a new heavens and new earth. Those who are not will go into everlasting condemnation. Daniel really does the same thing in Daniel 12, verses 1 and 2, when he says, at the end of time, all those who are in the dust of the earth will awake some to everlasting contempt or condemnation or shame, but others to everlasting joy, and they will shine like the brightness of the stars forever and ever. And so there is in many passages of the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, this picture of a final end time judgment in which God will be the one who finally sorts out and he will separate the sheep from the goats. And so there's a a final warning here to make sure that you are of those who seek the Lord in faith, in humility, and desiring to be a part of that everlasting kingdom. Not those who go their own way and do their own thing in their own stubbornness and rebellion. That's a great hope to look forward to, isn't it? The, The new heavens and the new earth. And you can read the last couple of chapters of Revelation and you can see how John picks up on this language and He takes what Isaiah said and he expands upon it and draws from all of the prophets, draws from Isaiah, draws some from Ezekiel and his vision of a new temple. And and he draws all of these images together and presents this glorious future that awaits all of God's people. And that future helps to motivate us in the present, doesn't it? it? It gives us something to look forward to in hopefulness and this joy that God has set out before us.